WKCRFM, New York, WKCRHD, WKCR.org, worldwide on the web. If you're in New York and you want to tell your friends about us, tell them WKCR.org. Or maybe you're listening to the Deep Focus podcast, which is on that phone in your pocket right now, because that's the name of the show. My name is Mitch Goldman. I'm your host. And here's the way we play the game. We invite a guest. The guest chooses a topic for us to explore, and uh, we dive into the WKCR archives and find live, maybe unreleased recordings of the guest's choosing. And I'm very happy to welcome back to the studio my guest tonight, Henry Threadgill. It's a pleasure to be back here with you, Mitch. Thank you for having me. It's been a little minute since we sat here together. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot has happened since then. Yeah. A lot of uh, that's affected all of our lives. And uh, one of the things that's affected my life has been the publication of your book, Easily Slip Into Another World. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad it made its way over to you. Absolutely. I'm going to just, that mic is a little low. Is it? Yeah. You don't have to push. I'm just going to swing this other one over. Try that. I bet that's going to work better. That, oh, so much better? better. So much better. So much better. All right. Much, much better. Okay. And um, yeah, I, you know, I've known you, and I've, uh, and I've known your music much better for many years, and this book has shined a bright light, and mm-hmm. uh, I've just got such a greater understanding of where you come from, and you're so forthright and giving in creating this book. I, I have to thank you for that. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure, I'm telling you. What a journey that was, to, to recall all of that material, you know. I can imagine. Uh-huh. I can imagine. I, I'm, I, I, let me also um, just <clears throat> acknowledge your co-author, Brent Hayes Edwards, who I'm sure, I mean, it sounds, reading that book, it feels like your voice. It feels like hanging out with you and hearing what you have to say. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure he had no small part in shaping it. Mm-hmm. But I am kind of curious how, um, <clears throat> what led you. I mean, this had to be an enormous undertaking, a lot of time. And what made you feel that was something you had time to do with all the other things that I know you like to do? Well, at the at the time when Brent <clears throat> first approached me, we were, he was doing, um, he was working on the book about the loft jazz period. <clears throat> and um, he was interviewing me and questioning me about my memories of that. 
And he also had with him, he had found some early recordings that I knew, tapes. Uh, Jackie Oaks had made tapes from La Mama. It was the first performance in New York City of Air. And he also had some Julius Hemphill material, you know. So um, this is how it all got started, you know. So he was getting a lot, it was a lot of back and forth. <clears throat> and one thing led to the other. I don't know, we still don't know who said, you know, maybe we should do a book, you know. And so what we did, we just started taping, you know. We just started running the tape recorder for about five years, you know. We just taped for five years. <laughs> I would imagine. Uh-huh. I would imagine it would take that. I guess it's it's got to be invaluable having a partner to work with on yeah. something like that because yeah. I don't know where you would begin. And that had you done nothing else, mm-hmm. that part about the loft jazz mm-hmm. period would have been magnificent. Yeah, I mean, that was very, it's kind of documented in some ways, and people have yeah. survived and are They're happy kind of talk. talking about it right now. It's an article I just saw um, in the Times about Sam Rivers. They had a, uh, you know, a celebration of Sam Rivers' material with big band up at, uh, I think, Mount Morris Church. Yeah, on, um, I think it was Friday I was there. Yeah, Friday. Yeah. And Craig uh, Harris was in yeah. that seat where you are three right. weeks ago tonight. And that was part of that period. That was a significant part of that period because um, that street had a number of lofts, and there were lofts around the corner. John Fisher's loft was on Broadway right there. Uh, Jasmania, I don't know what the name of it was. Yeah, well, we're talking about Bond Street in Bond the Street, mid-70s. Right around on Broadway was John Fisher's place, and I don't remember, but... Uh, I know who stayed there. Brubeck's two boys lived there with him. But up over the Ten Palace, too, there was a loft we used to play in, you know. There was a number of lofts all over, you know. But that street, the Ladies' Fort was in that street, you know. So uh, that's a whole story in itself. Well, you you bring some of that to light in the book. And I love one of the things for me as a New Yorker, I don't know if everybody's going to respond to this, but these, a lot of these stories take place on these streets that are still here, mm-hmm. and there's, you know, echoes and vibrance that comes from that that still animates the place, at least for those of us who are aware of that, and, but also things, you just, you mentioned some things I never hear people talk about, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, you know, uh, Beefsteak Charlie's Jazz Emporium on 12th Street and 5th Avenue. Like, who remembers that? And you have all these things in there, this texture of life in New York and the life you guys were living, obviously. Right. And uh, it just, it really animates it. And I'm curious, do you, are those things available to you? Or did you find that the process of going into writing the book, did they bring it back to you, or did you did you keep diaries? How did you access no, all this? No, uh, like I said, we just turned the tape recorder on, and Brent, would, he's such a great researcher. He he knows how to prod you in the right direction to get uh, information out of you. You start talking about this particular thing, and then he'll 
branch off to the left. It's, it's like a tree. He would be, treat you like a tree. So the branch to the left, a branch to the right, a branch on top of the branch. So the conversations would go, and then he'd double back on a particular subject for more clarification. And when that would happen, other things would come up besides the clarification issue, you know. And like I said, this went on over five years, actually about more like seven years of recording, you know. You know, another thing I really appreciated about it, this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And see, the thing was, too, um, I do have a good memory in terms of going back to my childhood. I was able to go back to when I was about three years old. So that was really important that I could talk about Chicago when I was three years old, you know. That part, again, it's almost like the, the book. So I'm talking to Henry Threadgill. His memoir is called, can I say memoir? Is that Do we call it a memoir? Well, it's an autobiography. Autobiography. Right. Easily slip into another world. And it's uh, more or less told in chronological order. Um, but there are some discrete chapters about it. And you're from Chicago, the early years in Chicago. And again, you really, it's, it's, it's almost more vibrant than the more recent years. Mm-hmm. And the stories you tell about your immediate ancestors, mm-hmm. too. And I mean, I love the way, <laughs> like gushing, like f- fandom. I've been looking forward to having this conversation <laughs> with you for a long time. Um, your language and your style is very plain spoken and direct, but the stories that you're telling are outrageous <laughs> and, and, and un, unlike anything anyone would tell I mean the stories about your grandfather's great grandfather's each one of those and it's a page or two in the book that's a movie that's a, a an epic American saga each of those guys can uh, can I ask you to maybe talk or, or read as you prefer about that a little bit uh, well, which grandfather you said? My great grandfather. So your great grandfather. Start with your great grandfather. There's a picture of my great grandfather in the book. My grandfather, my two grandfathers, one was Henry Threadgill, and my other grandfather was Luther Pierce. That was Luther Pierce was my mother's father. Henry Threadgill was my father's father, and both of these are like really unique characters. I mean, because like my. Henry Threadgill ran liquor all all the way to Canada for for Al Capone from El, uh, Arkansas, you know, with my father sitting on the seat beside him with a forty five, you know. Your I don't remember that. Was that in the book about your dad I with a forty? How old so. was your dad? Oh, he must have been like six, seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid to ask if he ever had to. You know, they were running illegal liquor all over the country. And that's how my grandfather made enough money to bring my father and my grandmother to Chicago visa Kansas City because that part of my family, uh, the threat, uh, the Starks, which was my grandmother's name, they came up to Kansas City. Kansas City was a jumping off point as people, part of that, that migration in America. A lot of people came to Kansas City because Kansas City was hot, right? That yep. was the town. I mean, 
Lester Young was there, Charlie Park, everybody was yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, and they weren't necessarily from there. It was a magnet town, Exactly. Right? See, and my my, un- my great uncle and my great aunt, I used to go there as a kid. They used to take me there all the time to be at their house. I remember, and he would take me downtown where all the music was to the places where they were playing, but I was too young to go in them. I was like, you know, four years old, five years old. And, and that wasn't uh, a place that you took a four or five-year-old. And not right. Just, right? But my father was, see, he knew all of those places, and uh, he had been in Kansas City, and he came on up to Chicago, and then he worked for Capone's and, no, and that whole crowd running gambling houses. You know, he was uh, like a manager in the gambling houses, you know, setting up the tables for the evening uh, crowds that would come in, you know, and uh, so he knew and he knew all about. He had great love of music. See, so that's when I first heard. When I really heard jazz, I heard it through my father in these gambling houses, because he would just give me a handful of nickels <clears throat> and go to the jukebox. Everything on the jukebox would be jazz, and I'd put money in there, and that's what would come out. You know, bassy, you know. And then later you said uh, you discovered his record collection. Yeah, yeah. And that was another right. another opening door. Right. And then uh, the story I'm trying to remember, was it your great-grandfather the that they they make the rules? Yeah, <laughs> he made the rules. <laughs> Maybe you could talk there about that no, a little yeah, bit. Cause... Yeah, he was just, uh, <clears throat> uh, I have never seen, or I had never seen anyone quite like that in my life uh and I had never seen any black person that had that much nerve. Um, he wasn't afraid of anybody, and he was consequences did not concern him. That was the other thing. Consequences. Most people consider kind. Of, he didn't care about consequences, you know. And um, it's like this, because like the, I, the story in there, I don't want to give everything away. Where he had to. You won't came, be, there's, he there's shot, so many. <laughs> you know, he, when uh, he and his wife uh, at that time, and his, he had a twin brother, they had a major farm in uh, Alabama, I think they were. And uh, authorities wanted that land because it was key pieces of land that set on the river. And <clears throat> he already had a, a reputation. He and my grandmother, and they all carried guns open. These were black people in the South openly carrying guns all over the, I mean, pistol belts all over their body and didn't pay for anything. <laughs> what What would they do? <laughs> they would just walk into places and take what they want, <laughs> you know, and made people call them sir. That was the other part, you know. And black people were afraid to be associated with them because, like, the white authorities will come out and say, what are you doing talking to those people? What are you talking to them for? Are you planning on doing something with them? You know, So the authorities had to declare them crazy. They said that was the only explanation for any black people behaving like that, that they were nuts. You know? wow. But nobody messed with them. So when the, uh, they sent the Ku Klux Klan to take that land, uh, and it was a shootout, and they killed most of the Klan. And so they had to leave, and they so they got that land and that house. But my, they went to Mississippi, and that's where my grandmother was born. See, when they they had to, they were on the run to get out of Alabama after the shootout, 
Right. And, <laughs> wow. And so that's where my, the Pierce, that's where my, my grandmother, her name was Robinson, because my grandfather's name was Robinson, and they met the Pierces who married my grandmother. She became Pierce. You know. All of this, this is, we're up to like page three, just about, <laughs> and the book, Easily Slip Into Another World, Henry Threadgill's autobiography. I have to ask you, I'm curious, uh, have you ever been back to Alabama, to those places? No, only to Mississippi once, uh, to Jackson, you know. Um, Were you ever curious? Or? Yeah, I was curious, uh, but I never went down there. I was, ne- I was never attracted to going to, to the southern states, number one. You know, um, in spite of the fact I see all my family uh, came from my, either from Mississippi or from Arkansas. You know, when I go back to my grandparents and great great grandparents, that's where they are from. I don't know where my grandfather was from. Nobody's. That's been a mystery. The Threat Guilds in America is a book called The Threat Guilds in America too. Well, thank you, know. you for indulging me. I feel like if we went through every story that gripped me in this book, we would be, first of all, we'd never play any music. So that's right. That's reason enough to push ahead. I just want to let people know how uh, rich the texture of all this is. And then, um, but a good chunk of the early part of the book is told about your musical background mm-hmm. and developing your musical aesthetics and mm-hmm. skills and mm-hmm. uh, and you talk about you have a couple of things that you talk about in that time. You talk about academics, and you talk mm-hmm. about uh, your successes and failures, and you also talk about the scene and what was going on around then. And you, yeah. you, there's so much great stuff in here from Southside to Maxwell Street to all to to Arthur yeah. Rubenstein and yeah. everything in between, and. Um, a couple of times in the book, you you kind of name check some of the people that were the grown-ups when you were coming along, deciding what mm-hmm. instrument you were going to play and mm-hmm. what was speaking to you. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit. The the people that you, some of the people that were influencing me, yeah. Which, uh, well, you know, what I mean, teachers, do you? No, no, I meant like just some of the bright lights. Uh, oh local. well, yeah. Well, the, the first of all, it was the people in the. Uh, Blues world, like the biggest one was Howlin' Wolf. That was my Howlin' Wolf. Then came Muddy Waters. Those were the two powerhouses in my life in terms of the blues. And then later on, people like Jimmy Reed, you know. But Howlin' Wolf was always the king. Yeah. <laughs> and then over in the gospel world, because I was brought up in that gospel world too, you know, in the churches. You know, James Cleveland and, you know, Mahalia Jackson. Uh, It was so many. uh, Singing Sammy Lewis, you know, C.L. Franklin, all these people could sing, you know. Um, And then uh, early, I think the, I think I encountered Charlie Parker about the same time I discovered Gene Ammons. (laughs) About the same time, I remember. Because Gene Ammons had this hit, Red Top. Yeah. And I used to go to, uh, at that time, record stores, shops, let's put it that way. They'd be, they, these would be storefronts that would be transformed into what people sold, uh, 78s and then LPs. And they would always, most they have a speaker outside up over the door. 
<clears throat> this was so that they could advertise and sell records. And especially become Friday. When Friday comes, when people get paid and they're getting off the buses and trains, so the uh, record stores are blasting music, you know. And I used to go and stand in front of the record stores at that time. And if I couldn't be there, I would, if somebody in my family had to want somebody to run an errand, I would always volunteer <laughs> so I could go and stand in front of the record store, I, you know. And they would say, what took you so long? You know, I sent you to go pick up something. I would be sitting there listening to Street of Dreams or Red Top by Gene Ammons, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I discovered Charlie Parker about the same time as... Uh, but uh, but Charlie Parker and them were playing at that time. I mean, uh, that struck me as very uh, abstract and confusing, and I loved it. You know, uh, where Gene Ammons was playing, I mean, he he could play as complex, but he wasn't associated with that first period as much as those the so-called modernists. You know, Diz and Bird and Monk and Bud and that group. You know. So, and Lester Young, I heard. Lester Young. And all, all of those people that were uh, jazz at the Philharmonic, that's Norman Grant's records. Mm-hmm. We had all those records in the house. Wow. You know? So I grew up listening to those records and all these. Nat King Cole had just a series of hits that was being played. Because other thing was, he was from Chicago. And, right, right. <laughs> and know? he's on those early JATP things, too. That's right. Yeah. And um, did you get to hear these people playing live as well? Uh, not the jazz people. Yeah. No. Uh, I I did hear some. I had you know Basie and uh, Father Hines, uh, but I saw them when I was at the you know at the at the movie at the theaters at the Regal Theater and Downtown Theaters, the State and Lake Chicago Theater. Uh, I don't know if I saw. I didn't see Duke, but I saw. I, I saw Louis Jordan a number of times. Whoa. I saw Louis Jordan about three or four times. Wow! You know, uh, I was crazy about Louis Jordan too. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> well, you also you talk about um, there's the legendary uh, school of um, DuSable High School, which you did not attend, right? And uh, Captain Walter Diet, who. Mm-hmm. Did not take the opportunity to bring you in as a student, yeah. but all those great musicians that came out of there right. under his tutelage, and some of them were uh, people that influenced you as well. You talk about that. Oh, there was so many people. I mean, that list goes on. <clears throat> you talk about uh, John Gilmore and uh, Dinah Washington, Leroy Jenkins, you know, Muhal, Richard Abrams. Oh, God, the list is, I can't even think of all the people, you know? Well, I asked you. Johnny Griffin. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, Clifford Jordan, uh, John Jenkins, John was it John Jenkins? Uh, Henry, Henry Pryor, the alto player Henry Pryor. Uh, oh, so many, you know. And uh, the book came out several months ago. I read it, and I told you, we got to do this. So this has been, we've been talking about this mm-hmm. for a while. And uh, I asked you, so what music are we going to play? And we've talked about the first 30, 40 pages of the book in the Uh last 25 minutes. Mm. And uh, it's a big book. There's a lot in there. I didn't know uh, which way you might want to go. You could have talked about 
that loft period. You might have talked about mm -hmm. some of the people who play with you and your more recent ensembles. You talk about them. Mm -hmm. But uh, you went back to the source, and there were two musicians in particular you said you wanted to hear some recordings yeah. of. Von Freeman and John Gilmore. The reason I picked them is because <clears throat> Chicago is considered a, a tenor player's town. With all these great tenor players around there, they kept coming out of there, too. Uh, and tenor players would come to Chicago to live, to be a part of that whole scene. Uh, Yusuf Latif, Sonny Stitt, you know, Sonny Rollins. Uh, it's just a long line of uh, tenor players that came there. I mean, so you got Gene Ammons, E. Parker, McDougal, Von Freeman, John, John Gilmore was extremely influential, uh, had a major impact on both Sonny Rollins and John Gilmore. And Coltrane, yeah. And Coltrane, yeah, uh, yeah. Coltrane and Sonny in particular. Even And he was younger than them, but yeah. they looked to him as a Yeah, he source. was like, he was uh, ex extremely forward thinking, and what he was doing was like quite new, you know. And yeah, you talk about, in the book, about um, rhythm in particular. Yeah. With him, and that he would actually practice out of Drummers. Drum books. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, you asked, and uh, I found some live unreleased right. recordings right. of both those guys. Right. And I imagine, I think we're going to get to play here both of them in this show tonight. Right. And uh, so I'm asking you, should we start with John Gilmore or shall we start Let's with... Let's start with Gilmore. And I Gilmore. love it. Right. I love it. All okay. right. Well, this, um, we've got a... Really fantastic recording. Regular listeners of Deep Focus have heard a number of times. Hold on, I'm just making a little switcheroony here, as Slim Gaylord would say. Um, these live recordings from the Half Note, which was a club here in New York, down on yeah. Hudson Street. Mm -hmm. And did you ever? Was it still there when you came to New York? Did I ever work the Half there? Note? No, no, no. Mm -mm. But no. Uh, no, it was gone by the time I got here. I thought it might have been. Yeah. But at the time, that was place where the cats would go and hang That's out. That's right, yeah. And there was this Friday night series on ABC hosted by Alan Grant, and That's we right. have a recording of a banger from 1965, as I pull out my notes. Uh, yes, it's uh, June of 65, and Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers are on the mm -hmm. bandstand. Front line of John Gilmore and a very youthful Gary Bartz, on mm. tenor and alto, respectively. The magnificent John Hicks on piano, yeah. Victor Sproles on the bass, mm -hmm. and of course, Art Blakey playing the drums. The absence that night is none other than Lee Morgan, right. who apparently got in a little uh, mix-up on the street with somebody who was trying to take his horn. He wasn't having it, and <laughs> might have lost a couple of teeth defending himself. But um, So he's not there, but that's okay, because it's more room for... John Gilmore, who um, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it or if you have any thoughts no, about him in this. I, no, oh, I haven't well, had a chance to listen to this. Mm -mm, this you ready? New. Shall we? Great. All right. The show's called Deep Focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman, and I have the great joy of sitting in the room here with Henry Threadgill, whose autobiography, Easily Slip Into Another World, okay. is available at bookstores and other places near you. You want to get this book if you're a fan of this music. You want to have this book, and you, there's uh, the gifts just keep on giving. But right now, 
We're getting into WKCR Chopper flying down to Hudson Street, 1965. Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers on the bandstand at the half note. It's Deep Focus on WKCR. This is Alan Grant, and we'd like to welcome you to the Half Note Club. And all our listeners, that is. Of course, we have a nice house here tonight. And one of the biggest reasons is because of the talents that are appearing here tonight. Art Blakey with the Jazz Messengers. And appearing with Art, we have Vic Sproles on bass, John Hicks at the piano with Gary Bartz on alto saxophone, John Gilmore is our tenor man, and of course, the fabulous Art Blakey on drums. And unfortunately, we don't have Lee Morgan with us tonight because of, a, well, some kind of an accident, and we do hope that he'll be back with us shortly. But Art with the <laughs> quintet tonight, our opening tune, On the Ginza.
Convergenza. Art Blakey with the Jazz Messengers. Uh, I consider it a, a great thrill to be able to present Art because uh, during our Portraits and Jazz show, which is heard like every night but Sunday night. Oh, in addition to this, I want to make mention of this because uh, next Saturday, not tomorrow, but the week after tomorrow, we have a, a new show which is called Jazz Matinee and I'll be able to present all the beautiful sounds from 3 until 6 p.m. in addition to our Portraits and Jazz show which is on from 11.15 until midnight. This is Alan Grant and of course with the compliments of the Cantorinos here at the Half Note making the broadcast possible. Nice hand for the Cantorinos. <laughs> now the only one that's booing is Art Blakey. I don't know why. You figure that one out. Yeah, you love him. I know you do. And of course, uh, American Federation of Musicians, Local 802. Uh, I want you to make mention of one thing, Art, and this has to do with our young gentleman here. Are you standing on this thing? <laughs> Gary Bartz. Gary Bartz is a newcomer to the modern jazz field. <clears throat> this young man is a very brilliant musician. He hails from Baltimore, coming from out of our country's greatest music schools. He has his diploma, now he's out here to get his education. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a young man who I'm sure that you'll be hearing from in the future, Gary Bartz, ladies and gentlemen, and doing I Can't Get Started with you. Oh, he's playing it. I thought Gilman was playing it. Yeah, no, that's what I was saying. Yeah. This, nice. uh, this is not a show about I Gary know. Bartz. I know. But my guest and I could not resist the opportunity to let you hear that little, very authentic moment mm -hmm. of Art Blakey announcing from mm -hmm. the stage. This is a live recording, obviously. Uh, this one from the half note, June of 1965, Art mm -hmm. Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And you did hear John Hicks on piano, Victor Sproles on the bass. Right. Art Blakey on the drums, Gary Bartz on the alto saxophone, but the person we were really trying to call your attention to was tenor saxophonist. Right. Maybe he's playing the next one, one by one. Yeah, he is. Idiot. He is, yeah. We'll get to that, mm -hmm. for sure. But I want to tell the folks, they're mm -hmm. listening to Deep Focus on WKCR, and my guest, who called for that song to bring your attention to John Gilmore, to Henry Threadgill. Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Mitch. We were sitting here listening and you kept your headphones on the whole time you were smiling you were tapping out beats and uh i didn't want to disturb you but now the song's ended i'm going to ask you what were you hearing in there oh i mean it was beautiful the way this the way they were playing there you know the how un understated our blakey was you know you could he, you could just feel his presence more than you could hear him and that's what was so uh, overwhelming about that piece. And Victor Sproles, uh, that rhythm section with Victor Sproles and John Hicks was just monstrous, you know? Yeah, yeah. I said, no wonder the two saxophone players <laughs> could play so well. They had that to bounce off of, you know? Well, we, uh, so now we're talking about Henry Threadgill's book, Easily Slip Into Another World, available from better booksellers. You'd go to uh, your local bookstore, as opposed to any of the big chains. Help them mm -hmm. keep moving when you buy this book. Uh, beautiful hardcover. But um, it's interesting to me, you chose Gilmore and Von Freeman. Gilmore, in particular, 
I think of when you say Chicago tenor saxophone, mm-hmm. and the image that comes to mind is the uh, embattled, swaggering, you know, Johnny Griffin rocking back on his heels and elbows sharp and make room because <laughs> here I come. And Gilmore ain't that. Mm-hmm. Is it? Am, is that? Am I being unfair to Chicago tenor players? Summarizing them like that, which of course I don't really he think just, of them all that way. He but. took a different approach. His approach, you know, <clears throat> like I said, you had these different um, schools. You know, Jay Peterson, Lee Parker, McDougal. You know, um, Gene Ammons, um, and Griffin. You know, but. Gilmore found another way of negotiating the music harmonically and rhythmically harmonically, you know. And he brought a certain kind of um, singular kind of vision of uh, playing the tenor saxophone. You know, when you go back and you start thinking about, you know, Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins, I mean, that's, those are like the two main rivers, you know. Um, And then the Dexter Gordon and Gene Ammons and Don Bias, uh, those three being the heirs to those two traditions with the alto saxophone playing of Charlie Parker. Well, when you hear Gilmore, you don't really hear, you don't really hear the, uh, not on the surface, where all this, how he's absorbed all of this information, you know. Uh, you don't hear really hear Charlie Parker, or I don't really hear Charlie Parker, Lester Young, uh, any of these people in Gilmore, you know, and. In a way, the same thing could almost be said about Von Freeman. Von Freeman had a way of like ex- opening up the entire textural aspect of playing the instrument. The timbre and texture of the saxophone com- was completely first destroyed <laughs> and reimagined in his playing and in his concept. Um, some of his ideas, I think, in terms of that, probably go back to people like uh, Johnny Hodges uh, about what he was doing with pitch, you know, because Vaughn would just take pitches and do all kinds of things with it, you know. And this wasn't, so, this was something that played out in a different kind of way with uh, Gilmore, but not in an exaggerated way as with Vaughn Freeman, what he would do with the pitch, you know. Uh, but both of these are two different, really two different approaches. I mean, you know, after you, like I say, uh, uh, Gene Ammons, Gene Ammons, and you have to say Gene Ammons and Dexter Gordon. Because that's the reimagining of Charlie Parker and Lester Young. And these, both of these guys completely found another way of doing things, you know. And like I said, well, they were part of this whole tradition um, and it's kind of a southwestern uh, thing that came to Chicago, this southwestern type of tenor playing that came up to from Kansas City up to Chicago because the, the the music that we played in Chicago really come from Kansas City, you know. 
more than from the East Coast or from New Orleans. It's really Kansas City jazz that we play in Chicago, you know? And um, like I said, so the the, the two, I mean, uh, the other tenor player with me that, that played with Count Basie. Uh, At that time? Yeah. Uh, Paul Quinshad? No, 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 before Quinshad, the one um, that uh, Lester went in behind him. Big sound. I can't um, not Coleman Hawkins. No, no. Uh, and Count Basie's band. Ben, ben Webster. Uh, no. I'm trying to think who that would have been. Um, I can't think it'd come to me. But these were all big sounding yeah. <clears throat> tenor players. Lester Young changed all of that. There was no longer this great big sound, but it was it was such a uh, unique sound and had so much character that it cut through as much as a big, it cut through just like a big sound. You could hear it just as readily as you could somebody playing loud, you know, or someone that just had a big sound. He could play so soft that you could hear everything, you know, because of the, 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 the quality and timbre and texture of what he was doing, you know. Uh, so Vaughn did pick up that theory, see, he picked up that theory and exploited that theory, I think, in his playing. He didn't try to play like Lester Young, but he took the idea, the concept, and took it in a different direction. You know? Another obvious question, mm-hmm. sitting here with you, Henry Threadgill, and we're talking about all these tenor players. Mm-hmm. You, sir, are better known as an alto saxophonist. Right, but I was a tenor player. <laughs> <laughs> For years, I was a tenor player. <laughs> now, and was it, you talk about, uh, very interesting, so many things in this book. So Henry Threadgill's book, Easily Slip Into Another World. I am gripped by this book. I had, it was like going on a sleigh ride reading that book for me. And um, your takes on things are always so you you have this way of turning things around and looking at them uh tell me if i got this right when you talk about tenor versus alto with regard to playing church music mm-hmm. and when you say playing church music it's not just uh a genre of music it's a programmatic thing that happens in the religious ceremonies right and was that uh around the time that you made the move to alto? Yeah, yeah. I have been playing in, um, I've been playing in blues bands playing tenor, uh, tenor and alto, but the tenor was really the voice, more of a voice in blues and R&B more than alto. Uh, The only alto player that was out there that that had been out there was part of the R&B world would have been Louis Jordan. Uh, but So when I went over to play in these gospel ch- uh, groups and in these churches, the tenor saxophone just didn't work. It, uh, it, it was the wrong voice. It was the wrong voice, you know, and it was a minister that, <laughs> that turned me on to that. He he told me, uh, he asked me to play a piece, uh, I forget, but his eyes on the sparrow, I think it was. So I went and played it, and it was got a very cool reception. 
extremely cold. It was a draft, yeah. as a matter of fact. <laughs> That's got to be. Is, that, is it worse to get that in a nightclub or in a church? No, no, in a church. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> nightclub is a whole other world. But no, the church, you know, that's a real spanking in there. <laughs> you get a spanking in there. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, so it was a very cool reception, you know, just people just. Oof, oof. Like that, you know, and uh, he, the minister said, he said, uh, listen, he said, I have a saxophone up under the pulpit. He said, "Why don't you take it and get it, get it fixed up?" You know. He said, "I'll get it. I'll pay for it." So I, I had it, took it to the repair shop, and they brought it. It was a really good saxophone, and I came back with it. He said, "I told him, I said, well, here's the bill." He said, "Okay." He said, "Now play that piece again for me." You know, his eyes on the sparrow. I went out there and played it. All of a sudden, I was getting all kind of reactions. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was immediate. Wow. You know, it, immediate. It wasn't like I had to wait. And it, it was the voice. The alto. It was the voice. Yeah. But yeah. You're, you're playing the same song in the same key. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's just, uh, it doesn't put, uh, it has to do with the human voice. To see, the, to see those alto singers up in the churches and the gospels. That's what Aretha was alto singer, you know. You all them great uh, gospel singers, they be coming out of that alto range. They don't come so much out of soprano range or the, the male singers, they be tenor and then they go into tenor high falsetto singing a lot of times. So that's the extreme high of the tenor voice. But it's the alto that really just socks you in the chest. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, And you stayed with that, obviously. Yeah. And uh, Aretha must have been, was she roughly your contemporary in Chicago? Who? Aretha? No, no. No, because she was like, you know, in Detroit in the first place. Oh, you know, right. Her father, sure, used sure, to, sure. her father used to come to Chicago. Yeah. You know. Right, of course. And, of course, see, uh, James Cleveland had been there for the in Chicago, in and out for the longest, and in and out of Detroit, because he taught her. Right. He taught Aretha, you know. But, you, yeah, you you talk, again, I'm just going to mention, because we're talking about it, the book, Easily Slip Into Another World, you, that was uh, a very important part of your musical development to hear oh, yeah. you talk about it. And, you know, another thing I really appreciated, sometimes you read an autobiography and there's this like lockstep, and then this happened, and then of course that happened, and then it was meant to be that this happened, and mm-hmm. you don't do that at all. <laughs> you know? You're, and I think, I think we tend to look at our lives when we rewind. It seems much more causally related how we get from one place to another. And mm-hmm. you're very forthright about you know these circumstances arise and you respond and. Um, I'm just, I'm very interested in that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's something you were consciously aware of in the process of writing the book. I don't know. You know, I left that to Brent. Brent has a a very good grasp of uh, of writing. He's got fabulous, broad technique. 
and he knows how, and he has music and dance background. So all that came to fore in designing his approach, you know, that we weren't going to be working in a straight line, and it was more a compositional approach, you know. But he had to, any other writer might not have had the skills to pull that off. Yeah. And we said, we're, going, we're not going to do this in a straight line. Well, that could have been a problem with certain writers, you know. Yeah. Well, a lot of, yeah, I mean, I'm curious. I, I He did a great job. Let me say yeah. that right here. Brent Hayes Edwards, uh, I'm sure, invaluable. It's hard to tell what he contributed and what you did. But I also appreciate the choices you guys made of things not to do. You don't recount dialogue as if it's mm-hmm. fly on the wall. You tell the story in your own voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just is very authentic. Mm-hmm. It comes very clear. And you talk about um, uh, so many things. So many great things. Should we get... Yeah. To, you know, I should let the folks know. You're listening to WKCR FM New York, WKCR HD, 89.9 FM here in New York City. All over the world, we're at WKCR.org. My name is Mitch Goldman. The show's called Deep Focus, and my guest tonight is Henry Threadgill. And this show and all the Deep Focus episodes get uh, posted on the podcast, Deep Focus Podcast. It's on all the big podcasting platforms. If you don't find it there, you can always listen to it online at mitchgoldman.podbean.com. It's free. There's no advertising, no tip cup, no, no nothing, nothing, just like listening to it on the radio. And you can take it with you. You can... Email it to your friends. You can do all that. Uh, if you don't mind, give us some likes so we know you're out there. and That'll help other people to find Deep Focus, Deep Focus Podcast. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram, Deep Focus Podcast, Deep underscore Focus underscore Podcast on Instagram. And we put up photos, and you'll know when new episodes coming. There's conversation among your fellow listeners, people who love the music you love. So mm-hmm. all that. And um, we are, we're talking about the book, Easily Slip Into Another World. We're also listening to some live unreleased recordings, including this one from the Half Note in New York, June of 1965. John Gilmore, who is one of the people that Henry Threadgill's called our attention to tonight in the Jazz Messengers with Art Blakey. And this next piece is a feature for the very young and I think terrific. Gary Bartz. I don't know if you want to skip that one to get to another Gilmore track, or if you want to hear uh, "I Can't Get Started." Let's do the one by one. I think that's the one after. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I don't know this one. Well, let's you know. find out together. We continue with our show. Here is one by one.
Oh, you know I want to hear that John Gilmore solo as much as you do. Well, you just heard part one of this Deep Focus podcast from September 25th, 2023. I am sitting with Henry Threadgill and the rest of that solo is coming to you in part two. There's three parts. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman, and I want to hear from you. I'd like to hear what your experience is listening to this program. You can reach us at deepfocusnow at gmail.com. Deepfocusnow. Tell me where you are in the world. I'm in New York City. I'm gazing out at the skyline from right in the middle of it all. But I'd like to hear where you are. Tell me where you listen to the show and what your experience is with it. Do you? What are you doing when you're listening usually? Do you listen by yourself? Do you listen with other people? And please do share it. Let somebody know. Let one person know about this program. We want to reach as many people as possible. It's all free. We're giving it away. No advertising or anything. And we want to reach as many people as possible with this program. And when you tell, well, when you tell us, we just, just lets us know somebody's hearing it. But, um... Click some likes or share it with people or uh, give us a thumbs up, whatever it is. Give give us a review, write something about it, and um, that'll help more people to find it. It's kind of funny how it works, but the more you say about it, uh, the more people talk about it, the more people hear about it. And we just want to share it with everybody. So, okay, I'll see you over at part two. It's the Henry Threadgill and the topic of John Gilmore. And later in the show, we're going to get to another magnificent Chicago tenor man that's coming your way.